We now return to our interview with Lev Golinkin, and we return to our discussion on his explanation of neo-Nazism in Ukraine and the relationship to the United States. Now, when we're talking about neo-Nazis, again here, we are not talking about the neo-Nazis that we see a lot in America. Let's say largely overweight, not capable of doing much. Okay, and we're not talking about people in polo shirts that are marching with torches. We're talking about gangs of rather serious neo-Nazis, both in not just ideology, but also the ability to fight. We're talking about street muscle, the ability to take on police, the organization, which was crucial. They were organized extremely well. Okay, Mm -hmm. so these gangs of neo-Nazis they provided the crucial street muscle in Maidan. One of the people who you mentioned, Andrei Perubi, he led a neo-Nazi party for a long time. He co-founded it. He ran the security for the uprising. And while, of course, the majority of people who participated in the uprising were not Nazis, the people who, who made the crucial difference and the people who then had an outsized impact were neo-Nazis. And those are the people that were edited out of the story in America. And quite literally, because there was a film called Winter on Fire. It was actually nominated for the Oscars as a documentary. It was just about how Ukraine is standing up against this, this government. And just it was complete garbage because even the director purposefully said in an interview, he actually admitted it in an interview, that he edited out inconvenient parts like neo-Nazis. And you can see, if you know what you're looking for, you can see a couple of flags, you can see the diff- you know them in some places, but you have to know what you're looking for. And if you're a foreigner who knows nothing about Ukraine, you're not going to say, oh, well, this is this organization. So these neo-Nazi gangs played a crucial role in the overthrow, which is why they've had so many of them come to power in the interim government. Mm-hmm. Soon after, when the war began in eastern Ukraine, of when Donetsk and Luhansk rose up against the in response to the coup, these gangs transformed themselves into battalions. The Ukrainian army was in tatters. They had nothing to fight with. So that's when the same gangs that played a crucial role in the uprising said, we're going to form volunteer units. And they then began committing extraordinary war crimes mm-hmm. against the people of eastern Ukraine. Now, I often get in, people often say, you know, you cover both sides, and I do, because the war crimes, and I, I will, the war crimes are also committed very much by the separatists and separatist leaders. They are certainly um, not excused from that. Mm-hmm. Both sides were doing horrible things to the people of eastern Ukraine while weeping for the people of eastern Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, I I think the intensity of it and the nature, uh, there's differences in the volume of it. I mean, because I I saw a number of concerns, and the same UN group actually indicated that there were um, atrocities committed by the separatists as well, but it just was not at the at the type of level. It wasn't the 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 the, the protocol, so to speak, of the deal. You know. I'm, oh yeah, I mean, we're talking. Yeah, we're talking about uh, purposefully like these battalions would purposely block food in the middle of winter to civilian areas. Well, well, that's that's well, a war crime. And that's not my word. That's Amnesty International literally said that at the time. I wrote an article about it for the LA Times. And they said, this is a crime against humanity. 
And the other you know, one uh, was it the labor building in Odessa, where all those trade unions uh, people took refuge, and it was set afire. And yeah, people, that's. A, I can explain that real quick. Yeah, please do. A, I think that's just um, that. so. Donetsk and Luhansk, as I said, were only a part of eastern Ukraine. They're the ones that rose up. Mm-hmm. But the rest of eastern, southern and eastern Ukraine, the Russian-speaking regions, remained part of Ukraine and remain part of Ukraine to this day. And the reason why they remain part of Ukraine is because of what happened in Odessa on May 2nd, 2014, which is when people in Odessa tried to, uh, tried to speak up and tried to, yeah, and tried to say, you know, we're against this, this new government. They burned almost, I think it was 48 of them alive. They chased them into a, a trade, uh, trade union building, and then they set on fire and watched them burn. Ever since then, Odessa was pretty quiet because the message was gotten pretty clearly. And the rest of the world didn't care. The U.S. Yeah. ambassador barely mentioned it. I think he referred to it as an incident. Let, let, let me also... Imagine 48 people be, being burned alive, and, and, right. and you consider it an incident. Let, let, let me also add that when I was following that, I remember reports where some of these 48 people were trying to escape the burning building and they were shot. Yeah, you know, leave, I, leave I didn't even get into that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so this was just... They were, uh, they were made... Horrific. The message was extraordinarily clear as to what would happen. Right. right. And to this day, they don't even allow people in the desert to mourn them. And where... The neo-Nazis t- take, take control on May 2nd. And they make sure that people can can't even do things like if they leave flowers by within an hour they're cleared out. L- so people can't even monitor, can't even honor their deaths. Let me ask you to reiterate the, uh, the geographical location of Odessa again, please. Uh, Ukraine is basically uh, the the when I say Eastern Ukrainians, the Russian speaking regions, it's the eastern part of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. That's where Donetsk, Luhansk. That's where also my city Kharkiv, yes, uh, which is the second biggest city in Ukraine, is. Mm-hmm. And Odessa is along the south. So if you can imagine a, a country where the eastern and the southern parts Converge. speak, yeah, they have their own, they follow their own church, right. they have their own language, and they also have economies that are very intimately tied with Russia. Odessa is a seaport in the south of uh, Ukraine, and and particularly just, I mean, this was a horrible thing that happened with the, with the burning people alive and then shooting anybody who tried to escape. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it happened in, you know, Odessa was particularly heartbreaking because this is a city that was, you know, the way I described it in an article, I mean, it's, it's a city that invented hipsters before hipsters. Mm-hmm. You know, this is just a very, it's just a very beautiful, diverse alive city, a city that a city whose Jews were slaughtered during uh, the Holocaust, a city with just this incredibly vibrant culture where so many uh, so many of the Jews, particularly from there, escaped to America. They wound up doing all sorts of things from running their own mafias to uh, working in Hollywood. And it's just it's just this incredible just it's it made it even worse, just this literary bubbling hipster city and seeing it happen there. You know mm-hmm, what I mean? Mm-hmm, and it sent a message to people in Kharkiv, to people in my city, to any other city outside of Donetsk and Luhansk. This is what's going to happen if you stand up against this new government. Got it. And the message was heard clearly. Listen, let me remind our listeners, we are blessed to have with us Lev Golinkin. He is an author. He recently wrote a, a piece in The Nation 
called Secretary Blinken Faces a Big Test in Ukraine Where Nazis and Their Sympathizers Are Glorified. Also, he is the author of a book, A Backpack, A Bear, and Eight Crates of Vodka. It was a mm-hmm. Amazon's debut of, uh, of the month. But your historical understanding of this part of the world is incredibly important. And I think the more we understand people and histories, and the more we understand what's really, really, really important. And this whole scourge of Nazism and all this type of stuff, I remember in 2018, and everybody can relate to this, but this is what happens when you have a, a foreign policy that results in bringing this type of government to power, but denies it, censors all of this information that you have been just eloquently unrolling for us in the last uh, 20 minutes or more. But, uh, you know, there was an indictment of several California men back in 2018, towards the end of that year, in the Charlottesville violence. And, And according to this indictment of several California men that were involved in this Charlottesville violence that we are also aware of, Ukraine's neo Nazi Azov Battalion was believed to have participated in training and radicalizing a U.S. based white supremacist. And it's long been known that this battalion and other militias, there's a number of other battalion militias, have attracted volunteers with neo Nazi sympathies around the world. But this is according to an article by uh, Max Blumenthal back in November of 2018. He, he outlined v- very clearly the conflict here. And four members of this Rise Above movement, this RAM mm-hmm. movement, described by the FBI as a white supremacy extremist group, were indicted for conspiracy to riot over the, the August 2017 violence in Charlottesville that we were alluding to in Virginia. And among other things, there's an affidavit. So this is not hearsay. It's a it's it's a legal document. Yeah, and this document. is not Max Blumenthal. As much as you know, Max Blumenthal does a terrific job covering it. But yeah. this is this is the FBI. That's okay? right. This is the FBI saying this. That's very important to remember. Yeah, this is special agent was Scott Beerwith. You're exactly right. The FBI special agent Scott Beerwith, B I E R W I R T H, twenty eight year old. Robert Rundo is said to have traveled to Germany, Italy, and Ukraine in the spring of 2018. So, I mean, to me, the hypocrisy of claiming the high ground when it comes to neo-Nazis in Charlottesville, yet we have a foreign policy that not just harbored, but, you know, nurtured and protected, as we indicated earlier with, with the legislation that Conyers had put forth that got submarined and basically below the radar, they continue to get empowered, although they may not be in as great position of power as they were just immediately post-coup. Can you speak a little bit about the Charlottesville connection there a little bit and white supremacy here in the United States and the connection to the Ukraine and, and, and not just the Ukraine, but this whole resurgence of neo-Nazism that you write about so eloquently in your in your piece in the Nation. Well, thing, yeah. Um, the main, and I'll, I'll just leave out the various. I'll just let's just focus on the main group, the Azov group. Okay. Okay. This began as a battalion. It's a white supremacist battalion. They employ neo-Nazi symbols that are just na- internationally recognized as such. One of the symbols they, they employ is called a wolf's hook, a wolf's angle symbol. It was used, it was found that the, the shooter in Christchurch, New Zealand, had that symbol. That symbol was also present in Charlottesville. So we're talking about, it's rather clear who these people are. Mm-hmm. They are very serious. And not just serious, but they're, the thing is, they're extraordinarily organized. Because they had this battalion, it grew, it grew by now, it's a regiment, 
okay, regiment. And this Azov movement then began to grow various subgroups. It grew a civil corps. It grew a street, a street brown shirt unit, okay, uh, called the Nationalne Drujina, the national, the national guard element of it, okay, all subservient to this organization. And the most scary thing is that they began reaching out to white supremacists around the world, okay? Mm-hmm. This group is thinking rather globally. Its founder basically said long before, this is like years before the, the uprising, its founder has written that his vision is that Ukraine would lead the white races of the world against, against the Jewish, the Semite-led Untermensch. Okay, mm-hmm. in a global crusade for the this is everything that this is like white uh, white genocide theory stuff. This is everything that today's neo Nazis we hear about. Okay, right. so the vision, the idea is to turn Ukraine into an international hub of white supremacy, mm-hmm. not just just with the battalion, but also with politics, with having conferences, with having concerts, having neo Nazi concerts, having neo Nazi martial arts tournaments, having things like that. So. And they have grown spectacularly and extraordinarily dangerous fashion because you will see fighters from all, all over the world go and fight and get battle, battleground experience, real experience in Ukraine. And again, to be accurate, there are also neo-Nazis who are fighting among the separatists. Neo-Nazis from around the world also come to that part. So that is just as dangerous. The reason why we focus on Azov is it's a lot more highly organized. And as you said, the white supremacists on the other side, we're not sponsoring them, whereas we're very much sponsoring Azov. John Conyers was phenomenal in trying to curtail the weapons going here. The thing is, there's been several articles, including by the Daily Beast. There's been, um, there's been other articles that basically say that we have no idea who the hell we're training in Ukraine. Because we're not just providing them with weapons. We're providing them with military training and expertise. And that basically just gets funneled in, into the Ukrainian army. And from there, we have no idea, and the National Guard. So we have no idea who it is that we're training. And what happened with the FBI arrests of the white supremacists, the Rise Against movement, is a perfect case of blowback. The term about what happens when we uh, send things out abroad and ignore it, and then it comes back home. So here we are. We facilitated this coup that brought these would-be battalions to power. We suppressed any reporting on this. I remember, for example, the great, the late great Stephen Cohen of the nation would try would write about this uh, a lot, and he was vilified for it. So we suppressed all of this. It wound up growing and growing and growing, and then it wound up starting to recruit white supremacists from across the world, including in America. So this is we raised, we nurtured this white supremacist movement that in turn then started coming back to us, started boomeranging back. Mm-hmm. There, was a, there was a man who killed, accused of killing two people in Florida who trained and who fought with the Ukrainian, with the Ukrainian far right. There is a, the Sufen Center, which is a phenomenal group that was founded by the man who tried to prevent 9-11, the federal agent who tried to prevent 9-11, Ali Sufan. And they have done an incredible report just outlining how the Azov movement is transforming Ukraine into a hub for transnational white supremacy. We have people from just all over the world. And again, it doesn't need to be a lot because a few of these well-trained people can do a whole lot of damage if they come back to their home. 
Yeah, I, I had not heard. I'd like to, to see the references to the white supremacists that were in the separatist region. I'm sure in any region you're going to have people that are part of neighborhoods that rise up against the type of repression that was coming at them, but I, I hadn't heard that. I, I, I did want to indicate that the other things that in your article that, that I've thought, and you've been speaking to them as well, and I want to Again, remind people that we're talking to the author of this article, Secretary Blinken Faces a Big Test in Ukraine Where Nazis and Their Sympathizers Are Glorified. I wanted to ask you in the, in the few minutes that we have left to connect some of that history of particularly in the Ukraine and the 1.5 million Ukrainians that were slaughtered by Germans and collaborators back in the day, but also in your article, you indicated that the reality is that the glorification of Nazi collaborators and the Holocaust perpetuators uh, is not a glitch, but a feature of today's Ukraine. And then you also indicate that it brought in the maiden uprising that is a new government that began whitewashing these collaborators on a statewide level. And then finally, you also mentioned, and this is maybe, can you can tie this back to that history I asked you to flush out for us a little bit, but that every January 1st, Kiev hosts a torchlit march in which thousands honor this Nazi collaborator, Stepan Bandero, who headed mm -hmm. a, a, an OUN faction. Can you talk a little bit about the the Bandera and the World War II era Nazi impact on Ukraine? Yes, and this directly ties to white supremacy, by the way, because wherever you see organizations that are honoring Nazis and Nazi collaborators, you will also find organized young men who are neo-Nazis. So again, just like the white supremacists in Charlottesville congregated around the statue of Robert E. Lee, you will see that statues and movements that honor Nazi collaborators, also, wherever you see it, that is the canary in the coal mine. That is where you see organized white supremacy. Interesting. Okay? Mm -hmm. These people, I mean, they see this, them continuing a fight. They, these people see a very long game. These people see themselves as continuing a fight from a very, very long time, a battle that has not ended. But here's what happened in Ukraine during World War II. The overwhelming majority of Ukrainians suffered tremendously and fought against Hitler. Okay? In the very western part of Ukraine, they formed organizations, and this is where the super-ultra-nationalists come from today. They allied with Hitler. They welcomed the Nazis with open arms. They started slaughtering Jews in some places before the Nazis even got to go there. But by the time the Nazi death squads arrived, the Jews were already, they did the job for them. The Jews were already slaughtered, Okay. These were extraordinarily fascist, anti-Semitic, savage groups. And the main one of it was called the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. That's an OUN group, is that right? Yep, yep, okay. that's the OUN group. Okay. And uh, Stepan Bandera was the leader of one of the factions of it. They wound up, first of all, they allied themselves with the Nazis. They formed entire battalions that were part of the Third Reich, that were literally in the system of the German military wing of Nazi Germany. They perpetuated the Holocaust directly. They slaughtered Jews uh, as part of the Nazis, as part of the auxiliary police that, that guarded the ghettos and that, and that murdered uh, the Jews. And we're talking about 1.5 million Jews. We're talking about one out of every four Jews killed in the Holocaust was killed in Ukraine. And often they were not even sent to concentration camps. They were just taken out and gunned down, like, at point blank. Yeah, and that's 1.5 million is a huge number. 
and they murdered not just Jews, of course. The, uh, these, the OUN, they murdered ethnic Ukrainians who they believed were against them. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, and sir. they murdered seventy thousand to hundred thousand Poles in the most savage. I mean, if you look at the pictures of what they did to Poland, I mean, they didn't even use bullets. Mm-hmm. There was just hand, you know, hand to hand work, and this was just against villagers. I mean, they, they did things that Hannibal Lecter would consider, you know, a little too much. And I'm not, and I'm not being flippant. I mean, it is just extraordinary what they did to the Poles there. Um, and now they are the official heroes of Ukraine. Right. Now they have songs written to them. They have marches to them. And the, the week before Secretary Blinken visited Ukraine, they had people in the middle of Kiev celebrating a Ukrainian SS unit, a unit in the Waffen-SS, mm-hmm. the military arm of the, the Nazi party responsible for the Holocaust. Wow. And it got to the point where even Germany and Israel denounced it. Right. Well, it, we're out of time, but I, I do want to mention that Zelensky, the president, he's a Jewish president, but you know, you write that he's been appeasing and ignoring and, and kind of engaging in this whitewashing as well. I, I cannot imagine the horror and the terror that must be in the hearts and souls of so many people in the Ukraine. It's easy to say people should be against something, but boy, I, I, I bet if you're too vocal. Uh, oh, yeah. You're, it's, you're, no, it's, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the lesson that we talked about in Odessa on May 2nd when they burned people alive, that lesson was learned very quickly. Mm-hmm. And people say Ukraine has a Jewish president, and the easiest way to answer that is America had eight years of a black president. <laughs> Did that wind up solving racism? Right, right. Okay? I think it's a good So analogy. people who say Ukraine cannot be anti-Semitic because it has a Jewish president, you just say, yeah, just like America couldn't be racist because it had a black president. Very, very well put. Well, listen, we have had the pleasure, and it's been a pleasure, and it's been a great education for me, and I will continue to follow your work, Lev, but we have had Lev Golinkin as our guest tonight on bringing light into darkness. Mr. Galinkin is a graduate of Boston College. He came to the United States as a child refugee from the eastern Ukrainian city of Kharkov back in 1990. He writes on the Ukrainian crisis and this white supremacy and neo-Nazi resurgence um, that should be front page news and has not even made it to the news. So thank you for your eloquent history. If people want to follow your work, is there a website or or how would you suggest people follow your work if they're interested? I am not on Twitter or anything. Uh, if they if they just want to Google me, if they want to, if we'll be talking about Ukraine. So a yeah. lot of my work in Ukraine has been done in the nation. So if you just if you just look at me through the nation or the forward, if you want to do the, my work on just white supremacy in general, you can go to uh, Google my articles at CNN and NBC, Holocaust Distortion, I wrote about the New York Times and Washington Post. So I guess probably the easiest thing would be to just Google my name, whatever topic, whether it's immigration, whatever you want to go, and it'll pop up those and it'll pop up those articles. All right, so let's just end the show with that name, Lev Golinkin, G O L I N K I N. Lev, thank you so much for making time. I know your schedule is very busy and you have a lot of options to be on medias throughout the country. And thank you for accepting our invitation to bring light into darkness. And thank you for bringing light into real darkness. It's a privilege. I very, very much appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. All right, my friend. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the Internet. If you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with 
Land of Naivety. Associate 